Turn our Bibles now, if you would please, to the epistle of 1 John chapter 2. Uh, this evening I want to get right into our study in this second verse of this, of this chapter. I spent quite a bit of time on this verse, and I think it's very important that we do. I think it's uh, critical that we understand the work of Christ on the cross. And then we look at this very, very closely. And tonight we're attempting to explain, and we'll, this is a couple of sermons on this particular part of uh, the sermon that we're in right now. We're going to be talking a little bit about the scope of Christ's atoning work. Now, if you'll look in the first verse of chapter 2 and then our text verse, which is verse number 2, it says, My little children, these things write I unto you that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now those are great verses. Those are powerful. Those are important verses, but they're also greatly misunderstood verses. Now I've titled these messages, The Sacrifice That Really Satisfied, because I believe that Christ accomplished everything that he intended to do when he went to the cross. The scripture says that he is the propitiation for our sins. And that means that God's anger was against us. God, God's wrath is on us. But God's wrath has been set aside because God has been appeased. Now, of course, we're talking about believers here, for believers. And that's what propitiation means. And so if God is appeased, if he is no longer angry at us, if his justice has been satisfied through the death of Christ, then there is no cause that he would condemn us. Verse number two says, or verse number two, as I said, is critical for that understanding because this is very commonly taught that Christ uh, satisfied God for the sins of everyone in the world, which couldn't be true unless everyone in the world is saved. Now, I want you to look at the points that we had in the previous couple of messages just to keep this outline together. And I'm just going to be very brief with this. We don't have time to go into them in their entirety. But let's, the first uh, couple of points that we spoke of were the satisfaction of Christ. He is the propitiation for our sins. Christ is the only way that God can be satisfied for sin. Now, propitiation, again, means the appeasement of wrath. God is angry because of sin, because sin impugns his holiness. One thing that God will never do, he never lets sin go unpunished. Sin is always punished. And God um, punished Christ for our sins, and it's right for God to condemn people to hell because they've broken his commandments. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That's what Scripture says. But in his mercy, God has allowed that there would be a way that his justice could be satisfied. And again, that is through the sacrifice of Christ. And whether you realize this or not, there are many, many people that disagree with penal substitution. And they say it's impossible that someone else can actually suffer for another person's crimes, for his sins, and that would be an actually an act of justice. But we have to remember this, that God is the one who makes the rules. And so we can try to outwit God. We can uh, try to put man's twist on this. But the fact is that all truth is God's truth. And so according to Scripture, the Bible says that God put our sins on Christ. God made his own sacrifice, and God is satisfied with that. And God 
designed it so it would perfectly serve his justice. So I'm okay with that if that's what the Word of God says. Now, number two that we talked about is the substitution of Christ. And I've uh, stated this, but even to make it clearer to you, we've stated it already. As I explained last week, Uh, when we were going through this, Christ died for our sins, and in that, or when we're justified from our sins, there's actually what we call a double act of imputation. At the same time that we are justified by our faith in Christ, our sins are in turn imputed or transferred to him. And we looked at the pictures of that in the tabernacle. Uh, Both sides of imputation are pictured by the sacrifices that were made on the Day of Atonement. And that's when the priests would take two goats. On one of the goats, they'd cast a lot, or the, one, the goat that lost the lottery, as I put it last week, is the one who was sacrificing. Would take, they would take the blood of that goat into the Holy of Holies and sprinkle it on the mercy seat in the tabernacle. That's the place right above the Ark of the Covenant. And when that blood is sprinkled, that makes atonement for sin. And we mentioned that the word mercy seat that we see in the Old Testament is the very same thing that we're looking at as the word here in 1 John 2, verse 2. It's propitiation. That's the place of satisfaction. So you had one goat that was sacrificed. His blood was applied on the mercy seat. But the second goat was different. They didn't sacrifice that goat. Instead, they would take and confess the sins of the people on the head of the goat. And then they would take the goat away and lead it off into the wilderness and let it go. And that was a picture that our sins are transferred to Christ and then our sins are removed from us. They're, they're gone from us. So when uh, the Apostle John mentions this word propitiation in 1 John 2 verse 2, it shows that it has a very distinctive Jewish flavor to it. it has distinct, it's distinct, distinctively Jewish. And what John is trying to show his listeners is that the pictures that were in the Old Testament actually showed that God took away not only the sins of Jews... But he intends also to take away the sins of Gentiles. So Jews and Gentiles are covered in the sacrifice of Christ. Well, that leads us then to the greatest area of controversy that we have on this subject. And this is where we're going to spend our rest of the time this evening. And so number three is the subjects considered. He says, And he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So who is considered in this verse? What people are considered here? The subject is, in other words, for whom did Christ die? Now, most people think, well, that's quite simple. Christ died for everybody. And so therein lies the great controversy. And the controversy is not between me and and, uh, other preachers, although there might be quite a bit of controversy there. The real controversy is between the Bible and this statement, Christ died for everybody. Now, I'm going to remind you of the message, title of the message again, the sacrifice that really satisfied. And if the sacrifice really satisfied God and Christ died for everybody, then everybody will be saved because either Christ satisfied God or he didn't. And I maintain that Christ did satisfy God. And since there are some people that are in hell, and by in fact, the greater majority of people are in hell, that there must be then some for whom Christ did not die. Now, when you say that, that is an explosive statement. And, and people get very upset about that. And they're shocked to hear you'd ever make such a statement like that. And they say, well, that's heresy. And they, that, that starts circling through their brains. And the suggestion that Christ didn't die for every son of Adam just does not sound right. But if Christ died for everybody, 
then there are vast numbers of people in hell right now suffering for sins that Christ has already suffered for, which means that their sins, for their sins, God was not completely satisfied. In other words, there's something else that had to be done. The sacrifice of Christ was not quite enough because it didn't deliver those people from hell. So according to Jesus and Matthew's gospel, there are very few that have eternal life. And if that's so, then that would mean that Christ's sacrifice is mostly an unsatisfactory sacrifice. So we're going to examine the scriptures on this, and we're going to look at scripture that supports the doctrine and some that, uh, what we're just saying, and some that appear to oppose that. But we know that scripture does not contradict scripture. So we have to look at problem passages to this doctrine as well as others that we think fully, uh, I think they all fully support it, but we have to see how do they support it. Well, there are three questions that we need to answer about the propitiatory sacrifice of Christ, and those questions do concern the atonement. Now, I want you to make sure you make note of the scriptures that we're going to use tonight. Some of them will uh, be on your screen, on the screen. They're all on the listening sheet, but some of them you're going to have to look up, so have your, your Bible handy so we can go through this. And let me say this. As always, try everything that's said by the scripture. Look at the scriptures and see if that's what it says because we don't preach anything that we don't back up with scripture. Now, the first question about the atonement, and we're only going to get to one of these questions tonight. The one we want to talk about this evening, is the atonement unlimited and universal? Is the atonement without restriction and does it cover every person in the world? Now, here's where we really have to use a word that makes people cringe. The atonement is not unlimited, but it is limited. And in some ways, it's not even fair for us to make that distinction because everybody believes in a limited atonement. Either you limit the effect of the atonement or you limit its scope. The atonement is limited in its effect when it's made for all without exception, but it doesn't accomplish redemption for all without exception. And so that means that if the objective of the atonement was to save everybody, then it failed to complete what it was actually intended to do. But on the other hand, if the atonement is limited in its scope and it's designed only for those who actually do believe in Christ, then it accomplishes everything that it was intended to do. And that's what we maintain. The atonement did exactly what it was intended to do. It accomplished redemption without the addition of anything on the part of man. It was holy of God. It doesn't need anything else to make it complete. It it doesn't have to have anything to activate it. It alone is complete satisfaction to the justice and holiness of a righteous God. Now, if you're thinking ahead of me, you may think like this. Well, the atonement, of course, no, it wasn't made to save everybody, but the atonement was made to make it possible that everybody could be saved. Well, you'll have to wait until next week for that one because that viewpoint has a multitude of problems as well. So there are questions that are raised about this. What about the many places in Scripture that we that seem to say that Christ died for everybody without exception. And when it's interpreted wrongly, we actually have one of those verses right before us tonight. John says he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So isn't that clear enough to us that everybody is covered under sacrifice of Christ? Well, I hope that you've caught this already, that John is very clear about what he intends to say, extremely clear about what he has to say. John says, our sins, and by that, he means the Jews. That's 
the primary audience. He's an apostle to the Jews. We'll talk a little bit more about that last week. And he used the word propitiation because he has a Jewish audience. And they're immediately going to make the connection with that to Old Testament sacrifices. But then he says, not for our sins only, not just for the Jews' sin, but also for the sins of the whole world. And if John didn't intend to make a distinction there, then why didn't he just say, if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is the propitiation for the sins of the whole world. He doesn't need to say ours in that case because whole world covers ours, doesn't it? But he makes a very definite distinction here. It's evident that he means something here. And what he means is that Gentiles also receive salvation in Christ as well as Jews. So the propitiatory sacrifice of Christ is not made only for Jews, but there are also Gentiles that will be saved. Gentiles will also be brought into the covenant of grace. Now, I want to look at some other passages. And one of the most familiar ones that we have in the Bible that everybody knows is John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. I've always said that the very best interpreter for John is John. So what does world mean in relation to 1 John 2, verse 2? Well, world in John three sixteen would have to mean that God loved all men without distinction. So it doesn't matter what color you are, doesn't matter what race you are, doesn't matter if you're wealthy or if you're not wealthy, it doesn't matter. God was never selective in salvation based upon certain characteristics of man. If he were, then we would say that salvation is merited and then salvation can be by God's grace. And John further explains, said the best interpreter for John is John, but he further explains it when God allowed him to look into the future in the book of Revelation. And John wrote this in Revelation 7, verse 9. After this I beheld and lo, a great multitude, which no man could number, of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues, stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands. Now that fully supports what John says in 1 John 2 verse 2, explaining that Christ's death is not for Jews only, not for us only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Nations, kindreds, people, and tongues, he said, saw, that he saw before the throne. Well, we also have to consider John 3.16 in the light of the nature of God's love. God so loved the world. Now, if that means everybody in, in the sense that of the atonement that we're talking about here, if God loves everybody in that sense, does he love unrepentant sinners, those who will not trust Christ, those who one day will stand before the great white throne judgment of God, those that are condemned to hell... Does he love them in the same way that he loves those who do believe and are in heaven? And so when you get to heaven, do you believe that the love that God has for you is no greater than all of those people that are right then in hell? So you would have to ask, well, does God love Nero in hell? Does God love Hitler in hell? Does God love the scribes and Pharisees in hell? Does he love Judas in hell? Does he love those that have the blood of the martyrs on their hands in hell? Is that the same love that God has for you? Well, didn't God have the power to save all of them if he wanted to, just like he saved you? So what makes you different from them? If he loves everybody the same in the sense of what we're talking about here with the atonement, why do you go to heaven and not them? Well, some people will say, well, I believed and they didn't. 
Well, that would mean then that the love of God, no matter how great it was, really doesn't matter because the love of God was not the deciding factor. It's because you believed. Well, if that's not the answer, then you may say, well, I never did what they did. I didn't haven't done what Hitler did, and I didn't do what Nero did and all those, those people. I never did that. Well, why did God save you? Was that because you were better than them? So are you better than Judas? Are you better than Hitler? Are you better than Nero or all those people? Well, if that's true, then you're not really saved by grace. Again, salvation is merited by work. So there has to be something other that Jesus intended here when he said God so loved the world. And it's very simple. God loved humanity. He loved people from every tribe, from every nation, from every kindred. And he died for his people and he did exactly what he said that he would do. In John 10, 11, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. In John 10, 15, as the Father knoweth me, even so know I the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. I had a very honest and straightforward conversation with one of our missionaries on this subject. And I appreciated his candor because he told me that he had done some very serious thinking on this and he realized that what he'd been hearing for so long couldn't possibly be correct. A careful examination of Scripture showed him there has to be something different going on here. But he's still struggling. He was really struggling with the issue of limited atonement. And so we were discussing these Scriptures and he said, well, yes, the Scripture does say that Jesus Christ laid down his life for the sheep, for his sheep. That, that's evident. So he said, I do believe that Christ died for the elect. He died for his people. But he also, the Bible doesn't say that he didn't also die for the elect also. Well, I believe that the man was so sincere about this, he was genuinely trying to understand this. But if you read John chapter 10, you can't possibly conclude that what Jesus said here, I lay down my life for the sheep, was not a point to help the unbelieving Jews that there's a difference between his sheep and the rest of the world. I mean, the discourse in John chapter 10 really doesn't make any sense without that. If you look in the 26th to 28th verses, it says, But ye believe not, because ye are not of my sheep. As I said unto you, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. So you read all of that again, and you go through the entire chapter And see if you could ever come to the conclusion that Jesus was making or not making a specific point here. He laid down his life for the sheep. And in this context, context, that means believers. So we have it right from the mouth of Jesus. And if you take the whole book of John, read it all from chapter 1 to chapter 21, take it all in its context, and you'll find that Jesus never made an an application to the atonement in such a way that it works, maybe it doesn't work, But he had his mind always set on this. He did exactly what he intended to do. Exactly what he intended. Now, there's some other passages that are troubling to people. Uh, Turn turn your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 2, because this is one that's always brought up in connection with universal atonement. So what are we going to do with this particular passage? So we're going to read it, and we're going to see if it doesn't explain itself. Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Here Paul writes, 
I exhort, therefore, that first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. Verse 4, who will have all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. What are we going to do with verse number 4 if the atonement is not universal? Well, first I would say, and and this is really not my main argument because the passage itself contains the main argument, what does God desire of the creation? Did God create the world? Did he create man in particular? Did he create man to destroy him? Well, God says himself he takes no delight in the death of the wicked. If God did, then that would mean that God actually desired that people would sin. Then he, could con- then he could condemn them. But God didn't create man to condemn him or to, dam- or to damn him. That's not his purpose. And so there is a sense of desire in God that, of course, all men would be saved because to say anything else would say that God desires for people to sin. That, that's not possible. But that does not equate with the will of decree. Because do you think that God if God wanted to save everybody, that this is God's desire, his intention to save everybody, do you think that God could do that? Do you think there's anything in man that would prevent God from actually doing that? Is there anything in us that God couldn't overcome so that he could save everybody? You see, somewhere here, we have to bow to the majesty and the sovereignty of God and understand that man is not the determiner of his salvation. God is the one who determines that. But you have many people that preach the gospel in this way. They say, well, God has done everything for you that he can do. And now it's up to you. Well, if that's true, then what is salvation? Man's operation, not God's operation. Because then man becomes, as I said a moment ago, the determiner of his salvation. But that's not really the point of the passage. The passage explains itself. Verse number 1 says, I exhort, therefore, that first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. Now, here Paul says, pray for all men. And then he says, don't stop short of this. Don't stop short of praying for kings and praying for everybody that's in authority. Now, why doesn't he just stop at all men? Because kings and those that are in authority are included in all men, aren't they? He includes kings and all that are in authority to show us that there is no distinction between men. So, the people that they would be most unlikely to pray for, who would you think that would be? I think it would be probably those who were persecuting them. Uh, The kings, uh, the, the Roman government, what was it doing persecuting them then? So Paul says, don't stop short of praying for everybody. I mean, everybody's included this, people without distinction. You pray for all of these people, including kings that are in authority. So we go back to verse number 4, and we find an explanation there. Who will have all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of truth simply means that he means he wants all men without distinction to be saved. Not a difference between the types of people that they are. Again, not rich, not poor, not kings, not paupers. All men of all classes need to be saved. Now, one author states it this way, which I think was an interesting way to put it. He says, I know that universal terms are sometimes connected in the Scriptures with the atonement, but if these are to be interpreted in their widest sense, why should the sacred writers have employed the restrictive at all? 
The universal terms may be readily made to harmonize with the restrictive, but no man can make the restrictive harmonize with the unlimited. So that takes us back to John 3.16 for just a moment. Why do we have world stated the way it is in John 3.16? Well, there's one thing I need to remind you of that we're always teaching around here. You never look at Scripture unless you look at it in its context. Context, context, context. That's always important. Never lift Scripture out of its context and try to build doctrine out of it. So who is Jesus talking to in John 3.16? Anybody know? Not specifically. A Jew. That helped. Nicodemus. Jesus was speaking to Nicodemus. That's what the whole passage is about. Now, Nicodemus is a Jew, and he was convinced of the usual interpretation that Gentiles were dogs. Nobody but Jews can be saved. Probably the greatest scholar and authority of all time on Jewish antiquities is John Gill. Another book that you might want to have in your library, and you can write this one down, if you, if you like to look at refutation of Arminian arguments, you might want to get this book, John Gill, The Cause of God and Truth. Now, it might be a little bit hard to read, but, but this John Gill explains this. Jesus, he says, why did Jesus use the word world in John 3.16? He says, it was a controversy agitated among the Jewish doctors whether when the Messiah came, the Gentiles, the world, should have any benefit by him. The majority was exceeding large on the negative of the question and determined they should not. That the most severe judgments and dreadful calamities would befall them, yea, that they should be cast into hell in the room of the Israelites. This notion, the Baptist, meaning John the Baptist, Christ and his apostles oppose and is the trite reason of the use of this phrase in the scriptures which speak of Christ's redemption. C.D. Cole, in his book, Definitions of Doctrine, says, As a typical Jew, Nicodemus thought God loved everybody, uh, God loved nobody, rather, but Jews. But our Lord told him that God so loved the world, Gentile as well as Jew, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever, Gentile or Jew, believeth on him, should not perish, but have everlasting life. Now, do you see then how uh, John 3.16 parallels the same type of thinking that we have in 1 John 2 verse 2. He is the propitiation for our sins, Jews, and not for ours only, but the sins of the whole world, Jews and Gentiles alike. Well, we could go through the scriptures and we could pick out many passages that say world, passages that say all, and there's no trouble for us to find out how the Bible qualifies those terms. So how many different ways does the word world appear in the Bible? How many different uses of it are there? Well, in John 3.16, the word world, there is the Greek word cosmos. And here, I'll recommend something else to you. If you haven't read Arthur Pink's book, The Sovereignty of God, you need to get that and read that. Because if you really want to know about God's sovereignty, his majesty, how God does everything for his glory, read that. But I'm going to give you a little sampling here, uh, showing you some things that Arthur Pink points out. And if I'm not mistaken, I believe you'll find these in the appendix of the sovereignty of God. But Pink points out, points out and he's not the only one. Of course, this, and if you do some Bible study, you'll find this out very quickly. Cosmos is the Greek underlying word for world. And in the scripture, the way that it's used depends on the context of it. Now, I'm not going to give you all the examples that are in scripture, but I'm going to show you some that are representative. And we'll show you by these passages that we put up on the screen that the word world is interpreted in different ways depending upon the verse that it's used in. 
So the first one that we want to look at is Acts 17, verse 24. And this is the apostle Paul preaching on Mars Hill. And he says, God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands. I think you could see there easily that the word world means the universe. God made everything, heaven and earth. He made everything that you see, stars, it's all made by God. But we look at John 13, 1, and it says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of the world unto the Father, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now there, the word world means the earth. Jesus was going to leave the earth, and he loved those that he was leaving behind on the earth. And you'll notice also that it says, having loved his own that were in the world. You think there's a point made there? I think there's a specific point made. John, three, or excuse me, Romans 3.19, another scripture where we see a world. Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty for, before God. Now their world is not the earth. He's not talking about the universe. World here means all people. We all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All the world, all people are guilty before God. So their world means the entire human race. But notice the next one in John fifteen eighteen. If the world hate you, ye know that it hated me before it hated you. Well, believers don't hate believers, do they? So the world there must be unbelievers. That's all that world can mean there is unbelievers. But on the contrary, we will look in 2 Corinthians five nineteen, and it says, to wit that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now there the word world can only mean a world of believers, because it says they are reconciled to God, no trespasses are imputed to them, so that couldn't possibly mean every person without exception, because then it would mean nobody's in hell. People in hell are there because God has charged them with their sins. That's why they're suffering in the first place. God didn't take their sins away. So you can see that God so loved the world does not have to be taken universally. And next week I'm going to even going to show you why taking it universally would actually be a very bold contradiction of Scripture. But before we close this evening, I want to just show you just one more. And I want to show you how do you interpret Scripture? I mean, what, what do you do in taking Scripture in context to understand the Scriptures? Well, very often, God explains himself. You just have to read far enough to get your explanation. Now, I want you to turn to Hebrews chapter 2. Here is another troubling passage, or so it seems, of the doctrine of limited atonement. Hebrews chapter 2, verse number 9. Hebrews 2, verse 9. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. Now, doesn't that say that God died for every person? Well, now, let's read a little bit further. And if you have a pencil, you want to do this, underline some words, and it will help you to understand what he means in this passage. Verse number 10. For it became him for whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons unto glory. So you want to underline the term many sons. To make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. For both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one. For which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren. And you can underline the word brethren. 
saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren, underline that again, in the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and, and this whole phrase, the children which God hath given me. For as much then as the children, you underline that, are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their, time, all their lifetime subject to bondage. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, so you underline that again, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. Now, I don't have time to really examine the entire passage there and just break everything down, but I, I, want, I want you to notice something in just a moment. But we see here, right there in the middle of all that reading, it says here that for Christ through his death destroyed the power of the devil. He overcame death. Isn't that what it says, I think? Well, if people are in hell and they're dead, dying in hell, eternal death, how did God destroy the power of death for them through the death of Christ? How how was that possible? Well, it couldn't be that he intended to destroy the power of death for them. He He destroyed the power of death of the devil over those who are God's children, those who believe. So does it help you a little bit to look back down the page? Verse number 10, many sons. That can't be anybody but believers. Verse 11, brethren believers. He's not ashamed to call them brethren. These are, those are believers. Verse number 12, I will declare thy name unto my brethren. And verse number 13, look how definitive this is. I and the children which God hath given me. Verse number 14, children. Verse number 17, brethren. Now does that help you to understand what he means by every man in verse number 9? It's qualified by all the statements from verses 10 through 17. He tasted death for every man that is a son of God. For every man that he calls brethren. And then the writer just nails it down when he quotes Isaiah 8 verse 8 from the Old Testament. So it can't be for anybody but believers. Because those are the ones that are given to Christ by the Father. Now Hebrews then is really, if you've studied the book of Hebrews... It's a book of the accomplishments of Christ. It's not a book of any failures because Christ doesn't have any failures. In chapter 1, he's superior to the angels. In chapter 2, he's superior to Moses. In chapter 5, he's superior to the Old Testament priests. In chapter 10, that explains that his sacrifice is superior to all Old Testament sacrifices. So now, would you say that Christ made an atonement that couldn't do exactly what it was designed to do? It was designed to save. And folks, that's exactly what the atonement does. It saves. So would you think then that the greater part of the world dies and goes to hell when Christ died to take away their sins? Well, if Christ died to take away your sins, then they're gone. They're gone. The old children's song, I think, says, Buried in the deepest sea, yes, that's good enough for me. Praise God, I shall live eternally because my sins are gone, gone, G-O-N-E, gone. So the atonement is particular. Christ died for those that he came to save. Matthew one twenty one says, And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. He shall save his people. Not that he's going to try to save them. Not that maybe he'll save them. Not that he's going to have a pretty good shot at saving them. Not that it might be possible that he would save them. 
Christ will save them because he died for them and he secures their belief because they've been given to him by the Father. I don't have any trouble with any of this because if, if you simply get it in your mind that God is the omnipotent creator of the universe. He created all people. He had a plan and purpose when he put it in place. He knows exactly what's going to happen. Why does he send Christ as a sacrifice for anybody that is not going to believe? That he knows they're going to believe because he purposed that they would believe. You read the scriptures in their context and you can't come to any other conclusion. But Christ's atonement did what it was supposed to do. He intended to save with it, and he saved. So is limited atonement, is that a dirty, heretical doctrine? Not according to God's infallible word. Now next week we're going to come back to this and look at it some more. We're going back to John three sixteen and 17, and we're going to look at that passage from a different angle. And as I said a moment ago, we're going to show you why it is a bold contradiction of Scripture to say, and we're going to take up this question next week, that Christ only came to make it possible that people could be saved. So who are the subjects considered in 1 John 2, verse 2? That's what we're trying to answer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity we have to look into your word tonight. We are so thankful that we serve a great God who does everything that he intends to do. And that gives us hope and comfort because we know that God is, you're in control of all things, that you've planned and you've purposed Nothing goes out from under your purview. There are no chance happenings. There are things that you don't know about, things that you're surprised about. Everything that you intended to do, you did do. And this is why we continually preach, our Heavenly Father, that everything is for your glory. This glorifies you. And we thank you, Lord, that we're able to be a part of that. Bless this time tonight that we've had. Bless all of our people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.